This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Today on Maine Currents, we're doing a year in review of the topics we covered in 2015 and looking ahead to 2016. We kicked off last year with a report on what has become an annual event, the Rally for Unity at the State House in Augusta. Mainers representing a variety of environmental and social justice concerns greet the returning state legislators every year with a lively reminder of what they believe are the most important issues facing the state. The fourth annual Rally for Unity took place earlier today. Meredith DeFrancesco was there, and she will have a full report tomorrow on Radioactive here on WERU at 4.30. In other news from January 2015, the town of Bucksport at that time was beginning to regroup after the closure of the mill a few weeks earlier. On a freezing cold weekend evening, a crowd assembled at the middle school auditorium to discuss their vision for the town's future. As we reported at the time, the majority of the suggestions focused on growing a sustainable local economy downtown and increasing tourism. Themes that were put into action over the ensuing months with special events and pop-up stores making Bucksport seem like anything but a shuttered old mill town. In January, we also reported on a scrap metal facility proposed for the shore in Searsport where residents were concerned about environmental impacts and the company's track record. We talked with members of the Citizens' Climate Lobby about that group's carbon fee and dividend proposal, and to members of 350.org and the main chapter of the Sierra Club, as well as other environmental groups, who braved single-digit temperatures in Bangor, taking part in a National Day of Rallies in opposition to Keystone XL. And we marked the fifth anniversary of Citizens United by talking with Jan Carpenter of We the People and State Representative Ralph Chapman about the progress of efforts to overturn that Supreme Court decision. And we ended the month with coverage of the UMaine Board of Trustees' historic decision to divest from coal. UMaine student Brookline's justice spoke at the trustees' meeting before the vote. We understand that the UMass Board of Trustees holds a serious fiduciary obligation, which is of utmost importance. The University of Maine system has a relatively low coal exposure in only three portfolios, and the coal industry is slowly collapsing, and it won't be too long before it is worthless. China has committed to significantly curb its coal use. Peabody and Arch, the two largest coal companies in the U.S., have lost over 75% of their value since 2011. The coal plants worth $450 billion in capital investment have been canceled. The carbon budget will pretty quickly prevent this industry from even existing. By divesting, we will be protecting our endowment, the risk will be low, and the message will be strong. By divesting, we will protect our endowment from a dying industry, we will follow our ethics as a university, and we will be on the right side of history again. Precedent was set in the 1980s when the University of Maine was one of the first 10 universities to divest from the apartheid in South Africa. The University of Maine system will be the first land-grant institution in the country to divest from any fossil fuels. This is significant. As the Princeton Review survey for college applicants shows in 2014, 61% of students seriously consider a college's commitment to the environment when selecting a university. Coal divestment shows commitment to the environment, sustainability, and the future well-being of their students. For the well-being of our university, our environment, and ourselves, we as Divest Humane offer our support of coal divestment, and we urge you to do the right thing. And several of the University of Maine trustees spoke in support of divestment from coal before the vote, with one of them calling it just a first step. And a representative from the University of Maine at Presque Isle announced that that campus has already completely divested from fossil fuels as of last November. Here's just a quick clip from that discussion and the vote. 
President Hunter. Yeah, I just wanted to um, actually applaud all of the, the, uh, the students and speakers of the, the DeVest group. I think you did a great job of taking an issue, certainly becoming very educated yourselves, spreading that education to the committee of the board, the board, the presidents, in a very professional, articulate fashion. Uh, you know, you persevered. And then you came forward today, and let me just say, excellent presentations, articulate, well, you did a great job, you really did, so thank you. Once upon a time, it was 1972, I think, and it was the first Earth Day. Um, I remember that very day and undergoing possibly what was a conversion experience, one of the not too many that I've had in my life. Um, the, the, the attitude at that point was, uh, well, you know, it was a long time ago when I was a lot younger, and it was a lot of taking on the establishment and wondering how you could ever make an impression on those people. Well, today we are those people, and I just want to congratulate the students who made the presentations and persevered for several years, and to the board and the presidents who listened. That is not necessarily the result that usually happens. It happens here. It happened here. I am very pleased and proud to be here in the room while this happens today. Thanks. Any further discussion? Okay, there's a motion on the floor. Uh, all those in favor of the motion, please signify by saying aye. Aye. Any opposed? Any abstentions? One abstention, Just please no. Thank you and congratulations. We're doing a year-in-review show here on Maine Currents. That was a clip from January 2015 when UMaine Board of Trustees took a historic vote to divest from coal, becoming the first land-grant university in the country to do so. In February, we've reported on concerns about over-harvesting of rockweed, a type of seaweed that's harvested commercially, potentially threatening the survival of the creatures for which it provides a habitat. We also covered legislation to legalize growing hemp in Maine, WERU's vote to divest from fossil fuels, the controversy around efforts to rewrite Maine's mining regulations to the benefit of industry, and that was a topic we've been covering for a few years, and our regular guests Naomi Shalit and John Christie from the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting joined us to talk about their investigation into expensive meals and accommodations some state legislators accepted from lobbyists for Time Warner. Here's a clip from that program, February 18, 2015. So you call your state representative complaining about the lack of decent internet connection in your area. Or maybe you organize a petition drive and you show up at their office with a stack of signatures calling for a change. How much of their time and attention do you get in response? And some of you out there actually know the answer to this. You've actually done this. This isn't a rhetorical question. But what if you were able to put them up for a few days in one of the most expensive hotels in the state and feed them steak dinners? You may think those things only happen in Washington, but it's actually exactly how Time Warner bought two days of Maine lawmakers' time last month. 
Naomi Shalit, an investigative journalist with the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, learned about the swanky meeting in Cape Elizabeth and went to work exposing the details. It was held at a Cape Elizabeth resort called uh, the Inn by the Sea. It was billed by Time Warner as their winter policy conference. Uh, The resort has rooms that range from just under $200 to actually $500 and more. And the legislators were invited both to come for a session on Thursday evening that included dinner, and we understand uh, steak was served, and then they could spend the night and go to sessions for much of the following day, Friday. Not all of the uh, legislators who went spent the night, uh, although some of them did, and um, they were served breakfast and then had a number of panels the next day. We're told that, um, and we see from the materials which we got that were distributed at the conference, that much of the conference was devoted to Time Warner's uh, concern about broadband, uh, municipal broadband uh, expanding here in Maine. And they had one presentation from some law professors from New York Law School that basically trashed the idea of municipal broadband, um, saying that that government-sponsored broadband isn't going to help residents and businesses get faster broadband speeds. And then they had a presentation by a well-known pollster in the state about how members of the public really did not want to pay for any municipal expansion of broadband. In March 2015, we talked with residents of an Augusta mobile home community that had become a co-op, and we took you to public hearings for legislation on a range of issues, from encouraging Maine towns to make plans to deal with rising sea levels due to climate change, to a challenge to the right to vote on legalizing marijuana locally, to dealing with complaints from people with PTSD and animal owners about the impact of recent legislation legalizing fireworks in Maine. Here's a clip from our March 11th show last year. In Augusta this week, the legislature's Criminal Justice and Public Safety Committee held public hearings on Monday for several pieces of proposed legislation to regulate the use of fireworks in Maine. Consumer fireworks... Those are fireworks for personal use as opposed to the big pyrotechnic shows put on by experts were legalized in Maine in 2011. Since then, farmers have reported livestock being harmed or killed as they panic. Pet owners have had to tranquilize their dogs. Combat veterans with PTSD have reported suffering flashbacks. The quiet nature of remote places has been disrupted, fire danger has been potentially increased, and toxic litter also presents a potential danger to wildlife. But even as this has all come to light, some Mainers maintain that it is now their right to shoot off fireworks. The new law in 2011 left it up to towns to pass ordinances to deal with these issues, but they haven't always been successful. Industry representatives say that emphasize that they are emphasizing safety and respect for neighbors and that fireworks stores are also providing needed jobs in Maine. The bills that were being discussed on Monday were LD-324, an act to control fireworks in Monhegan Island Plantation, LD-149, an act to protect private property and livestock from fireworks, LD-177, an act to protect farm animals from noise and the discharge of fireworks and explosives, LD-302, an act to encourage responsible consumer fireworks use, 
and LD459, an act to protect the environment from fireworks debris. Representative McDevin presented LD324 on behalf of Monhegan Island. The islands organized as a plantation, and as such, he explained they cannot make ordinances on their own behalf. But Monhegan residents are asking the state to do something about the fireworks that they say are disturbing peace on the island and potentially threatening tourism. Um, the residents have asked me that the legislature cr uh, create a fireworks ordinance for them. They desire a year-round ban with the exception of 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. on July 4th of each year. The wording of the bill includes consumer fireworks. Cannons have also become an issue, and I want to ensure that these toy cannons, and they're significant in size, are also included under the definition of consumer fireworks. Monhegan summer uh, economy is based on tourism, and an active artist colony is not a destination for wild all-night parties. And if you've been to Monhegan, you know, essentially as the sun goes down, they, uh, they, they, they roll up their, uh, their dirt walkways, and everyone hits the sack. However, some visitors over the past few years have not been considered of other guests on the island and light fireworks randomly through their stay. If this ordinance is not enacted, Monhegan's economy may be affected as tourists who look for more peaceful and tranquil, uh, as tourists look for more peaceful and tranquil islands to vacation. Worse yet, some of the artists may relocate. And some of the artists have, have complained to me about, about this. We have uh, testimony on several of these different bills. A lot of the people who testify combined bills, and so it's testimony about the impact of fireworks in general. Most of those who testified on Monday were in support of one or more of the bills, and uh, several cited concerns about the impacts of fireworks on farm animals. Senator Rosen and members of the committee, my name is John Olson. I'm the executive secretary of the Maine Farm Bureau Association, the state's largest general farm organization, and we are here to uh, support LD-149, an act to protect private property and livestock uh, from fireworks. Maine Farm Bureau is a general farm organization representing all different size farms and all different types of agriculture. As you uh, would expect, I get many calls and emails from farmers on various issues and problems they are facing. And I've received uh, many calls and emails about fireworks, scaring their livestock. And here are a few samples. A goat farmer from central Maine reported her goat was killed because it was smothered against a fence by other goats in a panic when fireworks were used. A horse farmer from eastern Maine being knocked off a horse because of fireworks being set off nearby. A sheep farmer from southern Maine reporting her ewe was uh, killed when smothered by other sheep when fireworks were set off. Another horse farmer describing how her horse was injured in her stall when the fireworks uh, were set off nearby, scaring the horse. A beef producer in northern Maine telling me that her cattle broke through the fence when her neighbors shut off fireworks and a poultry farmer in central Maine explaining how chickens in his barn perished and several were injured uh, when they flew into the walls because of fireworks. 
You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. That was a clip from our March 11th, 2015 show as we look back at some of the issues we covered in 2015. And that was a clip from a public hearing in Augusta. In April, we reported on legislation to remove the requirement to obtain a permit to carry a concealed handgun in Maine. We followed up with a discussion with Mainers with different perspectives on gun control, asking them the question, what does sensible gun policy mean to you? We did a call-in show on that topic as well. As we moved through spring 2015, we hosted a group of Orono High School students and their teacher for a reading of the 1927 Project, a documentary about a lynching, and followed that with a discussion of racism in Maine. We revisited the topic of the co-op movement here in Maine. We talked with local farming advocates about food sovereignty issues and the backlash against the anti-GMO movement, and with advocates of legalizing marijuana statewide. And we wrapped up May 2015, with an update on a topic we had been following closely for several months, as I said, the rewrite of Maine's mining regulations. At that time, we talked with Hendrick Gideons, a local resident who lives near closed mines in Blue Hill and Brooksville, where the legacy of mining has been disastrous. Here's a clip from that May 27, 2015 program. We're talking about protecting the environment for hundreds and thousands of years. I mean, we, got, we have to think in terms of geologic time. The Callahan site will never be habitable, never be habitable. Um, the the Kerr American site uh, uh, is, is not as active, um, but it too will have to be continually assessed over the decades, over the centuries, to be sure that the covers that have been put on will be will be adequate to the task. What's the problem? What is it about uh, metallic mining that that creates such risks? Very simple. Metallic ores are sulfide ores. In order to get the metals out of them, you have to grind that ore to powder. You have to wet it. You have to pour poisonous leachates on it, which then uh, separate out the metallic compounds. That waste, thousands and thousands and thousands of tons of powdered sul- uh, sulfide, when exposed to oxygen and water, turns into sulfuric acid. Sulfuric acid is not friendly to trout or salmon or amphibians mm-hmm. or people. Uh, and when a storage area of that material breaks or disintegrates, it costs a half billion dollars to fix it. That's why people are, exci- are worried about mistakes being made, adverse events. I'm not opposed to mining myself. I just want it to be done with the risks assayed properly and protected against and also to assure that those who make mistakes pay for their mistakes, not the public. For people who may not be from this area, just a little bit of background on the two mines that we're referring to. The Callahan mine is actually a super fun site. It's, uh, according to the EPA website, it's, um, and it's near Brooksville, Maine. A lot of people from this area know where it is. It was a former zinc and copper open pit mine located right there on the tidal area and apparently one of the only of its kind that was located in a tidal area. Operated starting in the 1800s and geologists, it says, became interested in the potential of the property again in the 1960s. 
commenced the open pit mining in 68. In uh, 1975, the Department of Marine Resources started taking an interest in uh, what was happening to the marine organisms in Goose Cove, where it, where it was located, and found levels of cadmium, copper, lead, and zinc at several times to several orders of magnitude higher than uh, what should exist there. Uh, the EPA has identified and current and future potential threats to both human health and the environment at the site. PCPs are, uh, PCBs are uh, present there. Let's see, some of the threats to the environment, according to the EPA, the sediments in the Southern Goose Pond contain mine waste along with high levels of copper, lead, and zinc. They were found to be acutely toxic to benthic organisms or bottom-dwelling organisms. Lead and other metals were found to be accumulating in biota at the site, including fish, crabs, clams, and salt grass. And uh, that goes on. You can read that at the EPA's website. In 2013, the Portland Press-Herald reported that a Dartmouth College study had focused on the area's metal mine or metal ore mine impact on the marine estuary, and they found high levels of copper, zinc, cadmium, and lead in the sediment, in the water, and in the small fish. They found levels of toxic metals in killifish that were high enough to have an impact on larger fish like striped bass and totog that feed on them. Totog, yeah. Totog, is that how you say it? that increase the potential for harm to humans. They also found uneven concentrations of heavy metals, suggesting a continuing source of contamination that's yet to be identified. And they quoted one of the researchers from Dartmouth saying there are areas where copper is still seeping out. It's being constantly renewed. And the Black Hawk Kerr-American mine, that's an $11 million cleanup. I think that's a number that, maybe that's a number that you mentioned. That's being footed by some of the companies that they were found to... Uh, to go back and who, you know, tracing back through the lineage of companies, they found someone who was some deep enough pockets to take care of that to whatever extent they can. That operated back in the 60s and 70s, was closed in the 80s. And again, according to the EPA's website, since that time, there's been erosion at the site, exposing waste materials from the mining operations. Studies in the 1990s indicated that metals including arsenic, cadmium, copper, lead, silver, and zinc have leached into the groundwater and the surface water around the mining site. And um, the EPA considered putting it on their Superfund list, but they uh, agreed to the DEP's suggestion to work together on a site cleanup. So what mining companies are saying, though, is that this wouldn't be a problem today, that they have new technologies. Um, I take it you're not convinced. I'm not. Uh, and, one of the, and, and one thing that occurs to me is that in that short initial passage period of time, the 30-plus days in 2012, they couldn't possibly have understood what they were getting into. As I watched this year from February through the current time, I went to every hearing, every work session. I watched the committee slowly get its head around what they were dealing with. It's a, it is a complicated. There are five pages of definitions of terms in the regulations. Uh, it's not easy to grasp a lot of this stuff. And legislators are ordinary people like you and me, except they get elected. Uh, and and it's, not, uh, it's not a snap to just figure out what it is at stake and, and what to do about it. If you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU. I'm your host, Amy Brown, and we are doing a year in review show for 2015. 
Another topic that we covered extensively over the past few years and will continue to follow is the proposed Sears Port Harbor expansion dredging project. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers proposed to dredge nearly a million cubic yards of sludge and dump it off the coast of Islesboro. Lobstermen and others who make their living on the bay express concerns about the impacts on the lobster industry, even if the dredged materials were somehow contaminant-free. The Army Corps of Engineers claim their testing showed that the area is free of the mercury that's present nearby in such high concentrations that the lobster and shellfish fisheries were closed. A report by a scientist specializing in mercury contamination, however, was highly critical of their testing methods. Other heavy metals and pollutants have also been found in the area, and there are many questions about whether the harbor channel even needs to be expanded and who would benefit. Supporters claim it would increase shipping, opponents say only a handful of ships each year are delayed by the tides, and that the main lobster industry should not be put at risk to benefit giant oil companies. In June, we got an update from Kim Tucker, an attorney representing lobstermen, oyster farmers, and environmentalists who oppose the expansion dredging project. Last year, there was um, information that was let out by the Corps that they were poised in about April or July, somewhere in that range of uh, 2014, to file this application for water quality certification. And in part based on the revelations that um, Dr. Yeager, who is the federal court's sediment expert in the Malincrot Holtrichem mercury contamination case that's pending, um, in uh, district court in Maine. Um, the revelations from his analysis of their 2008 um, sediment testing, which they were trying to rely on for their 2013 uh, report, um, was a violation of their own rules to use such outdated information. Um, and based on his reports about the um, lack of adequacy of the testing methods used and um, the violation of the Corps and EPA's own regulations about using outdated information that's that old um, to try to justify a dredging project, because no private entity would be allowed to do that, um, the Corps um, was asked by DEP um, and also Sprague, um, which had a pending application to dredge at the dock, were both asked to redo their sediment testing um, using the Penobscot River Mercury Study Standards, which are 90-centimeter cores, um, and you test each one-centimeter segment for the first 0 to 20 centimeters of the core. From 21 to 40, you test 2-centimeter segments, and from 41 on for as deep as you got, you have it, um, you test five centimeter cores. And, and the reason for that is there are different striations and, and, and levels of contamination. Obviously, uh, the more modern uh, levels are more contaminated. But we know that there is, because of the Penobscot River Mercury study, a buried la layer of mercury from the Holtrichem contamination that's throughout the entire upper bay all the way down to the southern tip of Islesboro. That contamination is inorganic mercury, um, which can't be absorbed by the body as an inorganic mercury if it's in that state. Um, and it's buried between 8 and 16 inches deep. As long as that stays buried and isn't subjected to the bacteria that can called methylating bacteria that can create methylmercury, which can be the toxic that you hear that can get in fish, um, it's safe. But once you have um, that mercury um, exposed to that upper layer, 
um, and resuspended, we could contaminate the entire food web of Penobscot Bay, which is where um, over 20% of all of the lobsters caught in the United States are caught. This is a huge economic engine. 2,100 lobstermen um, are licensed in, in zones C and D, uh, which has a diagonal line across Penobscot Bay. This primarily would impact the lobstermen in zone D, um, and it could decimate our economy. That was Attorney Kim Tucker back in May of 2015 talking about the proposed expansion dredging project in Searsport. The following week, we brought you to a public hearing on the project's potential impacts on the fisheries that was held by the Maine Department of Marine Resources. Here's a clip from that. Good evening. My name's Wayne Canning. I'm a Zone D District 11 representative for this upper bay and also a fisherman for for probably at least 40 years or 50 years, somewhere in that neighborhood. And you said we can't comment on the disposal site. I'm not too happy about that. And I hope there's a time period somewhere where we can comment on it, because that's part of our fishery. <clears throat> but back to the... Can I just clarify that right now, the, the, the issue of the disposal site is one of the issues under the Natural Resource Protection Act that will be looked at under the natural, the NERPA, the law, the DEP is, is going to review this under. But the, um, the disposal site and the suitability of it is not part of what's delegated to the DMR. So it will be looked at. Okay. Will we, have a, will we get notified and somehow it will be on yeah, internet? We're, or? we're not really sure about D, DEP's schedule and when they're going to be scheduling their hearing. So I'm sorry to say I can't give you a date on that. Okay. So you want me to focus on the dread site? And the hall route. Well, let's go with the dredge site. Looks like you're going pretty much three-quarters of the way down Sears Island. There's a lot of guys that fish in Searsport Harbor over by the dredge site, through the dredge site, and up the side of Sears Island. <clears throat> the fishing through there the last few years has been good. Been extremely good, actually. And uh, we're all af afraid, the fishermen, that by the dredging, the soil and everything that comes out of the bucket is going to end up washing ashore where the lobsters will want to come later on in the spring, in which if that stuff is in there, <clears throat> the spillover from the dredge, the lobsters probably won't go there. So it'll make a hardship for them guys. <clears throat> and also, it looks like what I see here on your dredge area, it looks like there's a some 36-foot spot that's hard bottom. Back when I used to drag scallops, I dragged on the edge of that and plus on the edge of Sears Island. We towed there. We worked that over probably for a, a two-week period. And we got scallops all the length of the whole inside of Sears Island. <clears throat> I don't know if there's any there now or not, but there were scallops. And I don't know if they're there. By the time you get done dredging, you, that'll kill them. And also the clam flats and mussels that are along Sears Island and up in Long, Long Cove. The dredge project and the soil from the dredges, the stuff that washes out, is going to go up in there. And I, I believe, and the fishermen feel, it's going to pooch it. For how many years, we don't know. But in the meantime, everybody's got bills to pay. So if it does go bad, this dredge, if something goes wrong... And what are the, the guys supposed to do? So 
And the haul route, well, the fishing now depends on the season, how good it is and how late it stays going. Some lobsters are coming out through out of Stockton and north of there, also out of the Salesport Harbor. I've fished that right to the very end. I've gone across, I go right across there, across the shipping lane and wherever. I tried to stay out of the shipping lanes back when they designed them, but the ships don't stay in them. So there wasn't much sense to me to try to stay out of them. So I just put the gear where I was fishing before. <clears throat> so the gear will probably be there. Gee, I would say, I think you guys mentioned November 15th or so was going to be the, the time the dredging took place. I'd say the gear would probably be there at least through the first week of December, going through that area, from the previous experience that I've had. And all the way down through to the disposal site. Matter of fact, the gear gets heavier the further down the, out of the bay you go that time of year. So you'd have to change that. I would hope that someone would look at that and try to make an adjustment to make it work. And I guess I don't have much else. All, all I, the ecosystem is very, very sensitive. So every time you disturb the bottom like that, it's going to affect something. You're going to affect something up in that cove, along Seals Island and Long Cove. Something's going to, who knows, die off, maybe never come back. I don't know. It's a high risk. I think this whole thing is quite high risk for a guy on my end in the fishing business. And I think the dredge... That size is probably not necessary. Maybe a maintenance dredge <coughs> and go with that and take the spoils somewhere inland. I think we'd all get along quite well that way. Thank you. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown, and we are doing a 2015 year in review of the topics that we covered here on the program in the past year. We were formerly known as the WERU News Report, and toward the end of the year, we changed the name to Maine Currents. So we're looking back at some of the topics that we covered then, and we'll continue to cover and looking ahead into 2016. Following the Mercury Trail upstream in June 2015, the final arguments were made in federal court in the Maine People's Alliance and Natural Resources Defense Council versus Mallinckrodt case. That's the latest round in a more than 15-year-long battle to force the company responsible for massive mercury pollution in the Penobscot River to conduct some type of remediation. This is from our June 17th show last year. The latest chapter in a story we've been reporting on for nearly 15 years played out today in federal court as lawyers for both sides in the Penobscot River mercury pollution case made their closing arguments. We start today with a press conference held outside the federal building, which is seemingly always the windiest place in the city and always surrounded by emergency vehicles and motorcycles, so bear with us. But representatives of the Maine People's Alliance and the Natural Resources Defense Council, the two groups that successfully sued the huge corporation responsible for the major mercury pollution many years ago, a lot of us here in this area know it as Holter Chem, but it was formerly owned by Mallinckrodt Corporation, so you'll hear that name. They are now trying to get them to stop delaying and start cleaning it up. My name is Peter Lehner. I'm the executive director of the Natural Resources Defense Council. 
we are an international environmental advocacy organization with about two and a half million members and advocates around the world, including several thousand in Maine. And I'm joined here today by Jesse Graham, Graham and Sage Norborg of the Maine's People Alliance. And as you'll hear, in addition to doing tremendous social justice work around the state, the Maine's People Alliance has been our ally in this long and hard-fought battle to restore the Penobscot River. And we're also very happy to have with us this morning Tim Conley. Where is he? Right there. A longtime resident of the town of Orrington. Uh, and he'll share his story with you today. So we each have a brief set of remarks, and then we hope maybe you'll join us for closing arguments in the federal court here today. So as you all know, for over 40 years, people who have lived near the Penobscot River, the people who love this river, have been dealing with toxic mercury pollution. From about 1967 to 2000, a chlorine bleach plant in Orrington dumped six to 12 tons of mercury into the river. And mercury is a potent neurotoxin that's particularly dangerous to young children and developing fetuses. Six to 12 tons of mercury. How much poison is that? Well, a teaspoon of mercury can contaminate a railroad car full of fish. Think what six to 12 tons of mercury can do. And what happened on the Penobscot is no whodunit. We kn protest. No, this is just a press conference, not a protest. So what's going on there is a security guard came out and made everyone move and insisted that TV cameras, the local TV crews were there, couldn't be pointed at the federal building. So we pick up from there after everybody moved. So as I was saying, what happened to the Penobscot is no whodunit. We know the victims of this pollution. Pregnant women, lobstermen, countless songbirds, ducks, fish, and lobsters. And we know the perpetrator, a company now known as Malincrot, known probably to many of you better as Holterchem, the earlier name. And now it's time for the polluter to clean up its toxic mess. NRDC and the Maine's People Alliance first sued Malincrot 14 years ago to put an end to this pollution. Two years later, a federal judge held Malincrot responsible for this pollution. A panel of federal appellate judges in Boston upheld that determination, and the court ordered a panel of scientists to study the river. Those scientists... And here the wind actually blew the recorder off the podium, but we missed just a few words. The NRDC spokesperson said the scientists conducted studies... And ...recommended remediation. The wait has now been too long. Today... We will be in court to ask for an immediate, intensive search for active remedies to restore the river, to finally eliminate the decades-long harm to human health and the environment that Mellencrot's mercury has caused. Mercury contamination today in the river continues to plague the environment and our public health. Songbirds in the river's Mendel March have blood levels higher than any ever recorded in the United States higher than any recorded anywhere in the United States. Eels, crabs, black ducks all have mercury limits that exceed the main standard for safe human consumption. According to the federal court, a pregnant woman could not eat a single Penobscot fish in the measured range without endangering fetal health. The, the mercury also builds up in lobsters. In the same court-ordered study, 90% of the lobsters in one reach exceeded the main threshold for safety. 
And many of you will probably remember that this finding led the state to put a halt to the harvesting of lobster and crabs early last year in a seven square mile area near where the river meets the bay. And the court's independent scientists further found that the mercury contamination may be spreading, spreading towards the heart of the Penobscot lobster and crab fisheries. Now, throughout all of this, Mallinckrodt's behavior has followed the predictable corporate pattern, spending tons of money on lawyers and consultants to avoid the cleanup. We can only counter this corporate financial strength with our own determination to see that justice is done. And of course, with the facts, which are on our side. This company has dumped tons of poison into the river. That pollution is still there. It's still causing harm. It won't go away on its own. Those are the facts. And today we're on the doorstep of justice for the Penobscot. Later in June 2015, we reported on a controversial proposal to build a gas-fired power plant in Rockland on the site of the present City Hall. As the summer progressed, we continued with updates on the Searsport dredging proposal, the revitalization of Bucksport, and the efforts of the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting and others to monitor state government officials. And as summer winded down and we changed our name from the WERU News Report to Maine Currents, we started including more local culture, mostly in the form of local storytelling. Here's one of our favorites from an event at the Alamo called Bucksport Then and Now. Brooke Minner was the MC. So our final storyteller this evening is Naomi Graychase. Uh, Naomi was raised in Bucksport and Orland with a brief stint on Verona Island, and almost every place she's ever lived or worked here has been torn down. <laughs> but this hardly matters, uh, because like most Mainers, her memory is long, and in keeping with local custom, she often gives directions based on where things used to be, <laughs> much to the frustration of people like me. Please join me in welcoming Naomi. So I was born in Bangor, and I grew up in Bucksport in the 1970s and the 1980s. My parents were groovy hippies, and they also separated when I was still very little, before I even went to kindergarten. So my growing up time was fairly non-traditional, partly because of my parents' hippie inclinations and partly because their scant resources were divided between two households instead of consolidated in one. There was a lot of hardship, but there was also a lot of ingenuity. Ah, it was a rural upbringing, and we often lived without indoor plumbing or electricity or a telephone. I lived in tents and slept in cars. I lived in a one-room cabin and in a dome in the woods on Leech's Point, also built by hand by another hippie. These living arrangements brought many gifts, time alone in nature, the ability to entertain myself, and a deep appreciation of hot showers and flushing toilets. It also cultivated in me a profound longing for a home. As long as I can remember, I have ached for a home of my own, a place with four walls and a roof and a foundation, a place where I could garden and relax into the notion that I would be there for years and years to watch my garden grow. 
There was so much impermanence in my upbringing, so much shuttling between makeshift homes, so much transition. It was impossible to put down literal or figurative roots. I was always moving. Like most kids from our generation, my brother and I were good at playing outdoors, exploring, making our own fun. One of my clearest memories from childhood is playing with my brother in the mudflats on the Penobscot River. There was no fancy walkway back then, and kids had easy access to the mudflats and the river. We found some amazing things down there. A note in a bottle, which I still have. Some sort of tide tracker device that you could be paid money for turning in. All sorts of metal objects and trash and driftwood and rocks and all the magical detritus that can wash up along a tidal river shore. But our favorite thing about playing in the mudflats was the poop. <laughs> there was a pipe that pumped raw sewage right into the river. And at low tide, it was totally exposed. So that we could see every turd that traveled from a Bugsport toilet down to the river. They just piled up there. <laughs> what made these turds extra great was that they also came with bubbles. There would be a flush somewhere in Bucksport, and the turds would <laughs> travel down that pipe and end their journey in front of us. And then they'd be followed by a pristine pile of somebody's dishwater. And I suppose, for kids our age, there were few things so grossly fascinating as turds and bubbles all piled up together in a heap. I left Bucksport, not having contracted hepatitis or any other diseases after playing with raw sewage in my childhood, as soon as I could. And in 1990, I went off to college, and I lived away for 20 years. During all of those years, I was focused on my singular goal of having a home of my own. But by the age of 37, I still had never lived anywhere for more than two years. And I still had never found what felt like home. In 2009, my partner and I traveled back to Maine. And we lived in an RV, a really small RV, with our cat on my father and my stepmother's lawn in Orland while we looked at houses. We looked at 27 houses that summer, but the 27th one was the winner. Sometime in September, I walked through the door of this home on Central Street, holding my realtor's daughter, who also happens to be our MC's daughter, Mabel, in my arms. She's about eight months old. And the moment that I stepped into that kitchen holding that baby, I felt so incredibly certain that this was the place. And on October 28, 2009, I signed on the dotted line, and they handed me the keys, and I wept. Peter and I drove home, we put the keys in the door, and we walked in. It was a big moment. Part of my fantasy about having a home of my own involved a neighbor coming by with baked goods to welcome me when I arrived. <laughs> that part felt really important, and it was totally beyond my control. It's not really the same if you try to ask them. <laughs> so we moved in, and I waited. And then one day it happened. 
My neighbor, Pat, who's about my grandparents' age, came over with some baked goods and introduced herself, and we became fast friends. Pat came to all my parties. I went over to Pat's and sat on the back deck, and we talked about cats and gardens all the time. And then one day, in 2012, Pat offered me a gift. She had given me gifts before, but this one was extra special. She offered me her dahlias. Now, I love to garden, and usually I would say no to dahlias because I'm what's known as a slow gardener. That is a really nice way of saying I don't like the work of gardening, but I enjoy watching things grow. So I'm all about hardy perennials. Put them in the ground, do the work once, watch them thrive. Why wouldn't you? Dahlias are the opposite. Dahlias, you have to go out in the spring and put them in the dirt. You watch them grow. You have to go back out in the fall, but not too soon and not too late. You have to dig them up and save them and do the whole thing over again. If you don't save them right, they might die. If you leave them out there too long, they might die. If you take them out too soon, too much work for me. But Pat explained that these dahlias had originally been a gift to her from the first owners of my home. 1952, Pat and her husband built this home and sold it to a family. And the woman in that family, also a gardener, gave the dahlias to Pat. And every year... For 60 years, Pat went out and she got down in her knees on the fence between our property and she dug in the dirt and she put the dahlias down. She watched them grow all summer, so did I, right along the fence. All the pleasure, none of the work. That deal was pretty good. And then she would go out and cut them down and dig them up and put them in the basement. The other thing about dahlias is that they multiply. So every year you have more work than the year before Six decades she did this work. Two bouts of cancer, lost her husband, still out there, putting the dahlias in and digging them up. And then she offered them to me. It also happens that 1952, the year my house was built, is also the year my parents were born. So I couldn't say no to the dahlias. I had to take the dahlias. I said yes to the dahlias. For the last three years, I have been the one who kind of begrudgingly, because I don't like the work, goes out every spring, digs in the dirt, puts the dahlias down, and hopes that I'm not the one who finally killed them after 61 or 62 or 63 years. And then they come up, they're up, they're growing, they're okay this year. And in the fall, I go out, and I get down on my knees, not too soon, not too late, dig them up, put them in my basement, and save them for one more year. When I think about how Bucksport was, for me, it's poop and bubbles. When I think about how Bucksport is, I think about these dahlias. Because for me, the dahlias represent the necessary work of everything worth doing, of yoga, of a home-cooked meal, of friendship and family, community, relationship, and more than anything, home. Thanks so much. If you're just joining us, this is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. We are doing a year in review today, looking at some of the topics we covered in 2015, and we'll continue to cover this year. 
In September, we did a show on the Child Free by Choice movement in Maine, exploring the personal, environmental, and political reasons for deciding not to have kids, and the often hostile ways people who make that decision are treated. We joined the Eastern Maine Labor Council and the group Food and Medicine for their annual Labor Day event, celebrating worker victories across the state. And we took you to the End Violence Together rally in March in Bangor. In October, we covered Jim Hightower's visit to UMaine, bringing you a full hour of the populist commentary you hear from him twice a day here in his short feature on WERU. And we followed up on a story that we did in 2007 in which several Mainers had their blood tested for toxic industrial chemicals. At the time, it was found that every one of them tested positive. 46 different toxic chemicals were found in the bodies of 13 Mainers. The average body burden was 36 toxic chemicals detected in the blood, urine, and hair of each participant. We followed up to see how they fared in October. And we brought you the keynote speech from the 2015 Common Ground Fair, which focused on GMOs, as well as some of the lectures from UMaine's weekly speaker series. Wrapping up 2015, we followed up again on the gas plant proposal in Rockland and on local efforts to address impacts of climate change. We brought you some more local storytelling, this time from events in Bangor and Belfast. And this last clip we have for you today is from a two-part report on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, or TPP, that aired in December just a few weeks ago. Mainers have a wide range of concerns about impacts that the TPP would have on the economy and even on our ability to make and enforce our own local and federal laws. Bonnie Preston was one of the people who spoke at the public hearing on the TPP before the Maine Citizen Trade Policy Commission in December. Good evening, and thank you for having this hearing tonight. Uh, my name is Bonnie Preston. I live in Blue Hill. Tonight, I want to urge you to recommend to our congressional delegation to vote no on the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm on the National Council of the Alliance for Democracy. We work to keep alive the dream that Abraham Lincoln expressed as government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Currently, we have government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. As David Talbot says in his new book, The Devil's Chessboard, democracy is an impediment to the smooth functioning of the corporate state. One of the main reasons that we have this corporate state is that the free trade regime under the WTO, IMF, World Bank, and various free trade agreements have given multinational corporations power they could not get from transparent democratic processes. I will show this with a few pieces of information of the provisions of the Investor State Dispute Settlement Chapter of the TPP, which um, Alex covered as well. Um, under the WTO, multinational corporations must get their national government to challenge laws that threaten their expected future profits. And aside, this indicates that total corruption of our economic system, which does not guarantee profits. Um, uh, under NAFTA and the TPP, these corporations can challenge a government directly, putting a foreign corporation on an equal footing with our nation. The dispute does not go to a court of law, but to a three-person tribunal made up of judges who are corporate lawyers. They are tasked with deciding whether the trade agreement has been violated, not with deciding on the merits of the case. The lawyers making up these tribunals rotate between their roles as judges and their roles in other cases as advocates for the corporations. 
There is no requirement that they be impartial or independent. They can even be connected financially to the corporation that has brought a case forward. This is the system that just days ago imposed over $1 billion worth of trade sanctions on the U.S. because of our country of origin labeling requirement for meat. Americans want to know where their food comes from. We will not be able to because Canada and Mexico do not want us to know. When our Congress is allowing corporations, nearly 600 participated in writing the TPP, to write the laws in ways that serve corporate interests rather than the interests of the people, we have given away our claims to be a sovereign, democratic nation in which we are all equal under the law. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. We've been doing a year in review of the topics we reported on in 2015, many, if not most of which, are ongoing issues that we'll be continuing to follow in this coming year. We get many of our story ideas from you, our listeners. Please email news at weru.org and let us know what local news or cultural issues you would like to hear more about. We leave the national and international stories mostly for programs like Democracy Now! that have a lot more staff and resources, but if you're working with a local group on a national or international issue, that is a good fit for Maine Current, so let us know about that. We also forward your emails to the producers of our other public affairs programs here at WERU, of which there are many, and sometimes it may be a better fit for another program. So just email news at weru.org with any type of news tip or press release, and we'll make sure it gets to the correct producers. Coming up this month on Main Currents, uh, next week we'll be talking with people who are working to impeach Governor LePage, and we'll be taking your calls about that. And the following week, we'll be checking in with several area residents who have traveled to Palestine and Israel, some of them several times, to get their impression about what's happening in the region from their perspective beyond the sound bites and bias of the corporate media. The legislature's back in session, so we'll be following them in the next few months, and we're hoping to continue covering story forums whenever possible. So keep us posted about those. Again, the email address is news at weru.org. So that's Main Currents wrapping up 2015 and looking ahead to 2016 with independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Thanks for listening. Keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! coming up next, then jazz straight ahead with Larry Stahlberg, and as always, a night of great music here on WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org.